It's a very easy situation to operate. You just push the buttons in right here on, on the two sides, the two little buttons. And all you do is push them in and that will release it. And what, right here, push the button in, that releases it. And then after you let go, it locks. Firmly in place, so really, you're all set. And this is tough. It is? This, listen, give you an example. Say you have a, you know, you have to get up on the wall, high ceiling, vault right. the ceiling. Hey, listen, just walk right up. And I tell you, it's very safe, it's durable, and Girl, it's lightweight. you scaring me. So really, <laughs> see, now it's locked in place, okay? So really, you say, oh, Harold, are you okay? Actually, I didn't have it locked. You have to lock it. <laughs> Wow, right. I mean, the struggle's real for that guy. Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us today. If uh, today's your first time or maybe first time in a really long time, we're especially thrilled that you've carved some time out of your weekend to be with us here at Crossroads. And we are continuing this series today called The Struggle is Real. And, and for the past several months, we have been studying and walking through this letter found in Scripture called 1 Corinthians. Now, understand that this letter was written to a church about 2,000 years ago that was pretty messed up. I mean, this church was far from perfect. We've learned that in this series. It was full of men and women who were struggling to figure out this whole life, faith, and, and everything in between, right? And speaking of the struggle is real, by show of hands, how many of you watched the Oscars last Sunday night? Anybody? All right, about four of us. Good. <laughs> Well, you probably heard about it on the news, but the moment that everybody's going to remember from uh, last Sunday night was when Warren Beatty accidentally announced the wrong winner for the motion, Best motion, motion Picture Award. And so everybody from the cast that he announced came up on stage, and they were up there for a few minutes when all of a sudden they realized that Somebody had given him the wrong envelope and he announced the wrong winner. And so it was this really awkward moment. And it's one of those moments where you realize, man, that, that person who gave him the envelope, he had one job, you know? <laughs> and really, I welcomed the distraction, though, because last weekend I confessed to you that I thought Dubai was in India, you know? And so... That, those kind of things happen in life. And, and if you were with us last weekend, we saw that what we believe should never determine how we treat those who may believe differently than us. We all have beliefs and convictions, and, and whenever we become very passionate about them, that's when we tend to be the most polarizing, right? And so for the church in Corinth, what was happening is there was a group in the church that believed there was nothing wrong with eating meat from animals that had been sacrificed to false gods, that there was... There was freedom there, there was, it was totally permissible, but then there was this other group in the church that believed that it was wrong. They, they had a conviction about doing it. And so this church was literally on the verge of splitting on division based upon what people were eating. Now, we might hear that and think, man, that, that is so stupid. How could a church ever divide on something so insignificant? And, and you might even think that over the course of 2,000 years that today's church might be a little bit different. But we know that's not really the case, right? Our beliefs, our convictions, and how we view things, our opinions, we, we tend to use those things to look down on other people who maybe see things differently than us. Again, the more passionate we are about something, the more polarizing we tend to be. But Jesus would tell us that when we do that, we're really missing the point. 
And it's really a distraction from what Jesus said was most important, and that was our job to go out and to tell as many people as possible about what Christ has done on our behalf. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you, all right? And uh, if you don't own one, that, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take it with you when you leave here today. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, those Bibles should be on one of the tables right as you walked in uh, a little bit ago. We're, we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today, okay? Now, as you're turning there, um, it's only fair that uh, I talk to some of us in here today who, who don't consider ourselves followers of Jesus. You, you, you would say, you know, I, I'm seeking, but I'm skeptical. I, I'm just not there yet with this whole Jesus thing. But this is one of those rare talks throughout the year that really isn't for you, all right? It's really exclusively for those of us who are a part of the church who have taken that step of believing that Jesus really was who he said he was. And, and so you have my full permission to tune me out for the next several minutes. You aren't going to be responsible for applying any of what we're talking about, all right? Now, if I put myself in your shoes in light of what we're going to be talking about today, there, there might be this tendency that it's a little bit offensive from your perspective, and so I just want to clarify some motivations up front here, and it goes like this, that, that if you are not a follower of Jesus, and in light of what we're going to be talking about today, understand this, that we don't want anything from you, but we do want something for you. All right, well, we don't want anything from you, but we do want something for you. There's a big difference, right? Sometimes when you show up to church, it might feel like a timeshare presentation, like bait and switch a little bit, you know what I'm talking about? And so there's a difference between wanting something from you and wanting something for you. And, and so just understand that even if today may be a little bit offensive for you, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less true, right? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you pick up in verse 19, Paul shifts the conversation from talking about uh, disputable matters, secondary beliefs, to then talking about what's most important, and that is our mission. And, and so Paul unveils his strategy for how to reach people. He says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, Paul said, so as to win those who are under the law. Now right here, Paul simply stated his purpose in life. Right Before he realized that Jesus was God, the thing that got him out of bed in the morning was humiliating and killing more Christians, stopping the church. But then Paul had this moment where he became so convinced that Jesus really was who he said he was and that he really did rise from the grave three days later that he literally turned his life around. And so from that point on, the energy and passion that he used to stop the church all of a sudden was channeled to spread the church. Now, the reason why, why Paul said that his goal was to win as many people as possible to Jesus was because he never forgot his story. I mean, he never forgot where he came from. He knew that if Jesus could deal with his past, if Jesus could deal with his sin, then Jesus wasn't afraid of anything. Now, notice in verse 20 how Paul said that he became like a Jew, all right? I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Now, Paul understood that the Jewish people had enough barriers when it came to Jesus. Therefore, he saw it as his job and his obligation to eliminate as many of those obstacles as possible. Now, we know that communication, effective communication, is sometimes limited by the amount of distractions that we have around us, right? My wife knows 
so well when I'm not really paying attention in a conversation. If we're talking about something and she may be in another room or she's not making direct eye contact with me, she knows when I'm just kind of mentally or verbally there, but not mentally there. And so I'm giving her, you know, little verbal nods like, yes, I know that you're talking, but I'm really not listening. You know what I'm saying? The other day she came home and she was complaining about how sore she was from working out earlier that day. And apparently I responded by saying, oh, that's awesome. Now, we know that sometimes communication is limited by the amount of distractions that are around us. And, and so sometimes for us to connect with people, we have to eliminate those distractions. You've got to put down the phone, turn off the computer, shut down the, the TV, right? And so Paul right here understood that, that the Jewish people had a lot of obstacles. They were being distracted by a lot of different things. You see, back during the first century, there was a group of pastors who were walking around telling people that if, if you want Jesus, if you want to begin following him, if you want to receive salvation, you first have to submit yourself to Judaism. You, you first have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And for the men, this meant that in order to symbolize this decision that you made in your life, you had to be circumcised. And so here's the message that they were communicating. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. What's going on here? Now basically, this meant that during, in, in the first century church, that, that the church baptistry was full of women and children while the men stayed at home, all right? You know what I'm saying? And so a lot of church leaders at the time gathered a really big meeting in the city of Jerusalem because some knew that this wasn't right. Something seemed off here. The guy that, that first talked at this meeting argued why circumcision and submitting to the Jewish law was necessary in order to be saved for those who maybe didn't grow up in Judaism. But then one of Jesus' closest friends, a guy by the name of Simon Peter, knew that something wasn't right. It just didn't seem consistent with the way Jesus lived and how he taught. It just didn't seem right to, to clean yourself up before coming to Jesus because really that's Jesus' job. And, and so here's what Simon Peter stood up and said that day at the meeting. He said, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? In other words, nobody's ever really kept the law perfectly. Nobody can be saved by submitting to a bunch of rules. No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so Peter basically in this moment said, God doesn't expect people to clean themselves up before coming to him. No, he, he basically asked them, what good would it do to make people jump through more hoops just to get to Jesus? I mean, it's not like people don't have enough issues when it comes to the claim that a dead guy came back to life. And so take a look at how Jesus' half-brother, a guy by the name of John, uh, James, I'm sorry, responds to this, which, by the way, James is perhaps the best piece of evidence that we have that Jesus really was the son of God because let me ask you this what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God right and so James became so convinced that his brother was the son of God that he started following him and here's what James said it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God you see, joining your life with Jesus is offensive and it's costly. 
It requires that we admit that we're broken and flawed. We don't have our stuff together. And so our job as the church is simply to point as many people as possible to Jesus in light of all that he has done for us. Now, Paul made it very clear that, that he wasn't just trying to reach the Jews. No, he had a rather broad audience here. He was trying to reach all people. And so he takes it further. Check out verse 21 here, 1 Corinthians 9. He said, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. But to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things. This is his summary statement. He kind of brings everything home here. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. I do all of this for the sake of what Jesus has done that I may share in its blessings. Now, right here, Paul describes a really fancy church word called contextualization, all right? Now, contextualization is simply helping people understand what Jesus has done in a way that they can understand. All right, it's about translating the message of Christ without compromising the message of Christ, let me say that again. It's about translating the message of Jesus without compromising the message of Jesus. Now, notice how many times in these few verses that Paul said that he became like the people that he was trying to reach. And so when you think of contextualization, think about clarity. Think about undoing obstacles or barriers. It's about going out of our way to undo false perceptions that people may have about Jesus. In his second letter to this church, Paul reinforced this method by saying this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? Well, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so the imagery that Paul uses here to describe our relationship with people who are close to us but may be far from God is, is that of an ambassador. Now, in the ancient world, an ambassador was someone who was sent by the king or dictator to a foreign country or nation in order to improve relationships, in order to improve relations between the two countries, okay? And so his job was really to, to be a a source of unity. All right, now, no effective ambassador would, would roll into some foreign country and, and immediately start making some polarizing statements. I mean, he, he wouldn't show up at this country and begin highlighting differences or, or pointing out all the ways in which their culture may be wrong. No, that's not what an effective ambassador does. His job is to build bridges, not, not to build walls. And you see, there is so much at stake here with this. And the reality is we can't afford to get this wrong. Now, maybe you've heard something like this before. Maybe you've never heard it put like this. And whether you know it or not, here's the thing for you and I. When it comes to our relationship with people who are outside of the church, who are lost and broken, here's one thing that we need to remember. It goes like this. That you determine what comes to mind when people think about Jesus. You determine what comes to mind when people think about Jesus. You, you might sit there and think, wow, that, that's a lot of pressure, Patrick. You're exactly right. I mean, that's not fair. That, yet this is what we signed up for. Because to follow Jesus means to join him in his mission 
in redeeming the world and seeking and saving those who are lost. It's been said before that believers read the Bible, unbelievers read Christians. And so if that's true, chances are we we probably need some help with this. We need to understand a little bit more clearly what this looks like, okay? And so much of our job in life is doing away with what some call unnecessary resistance that people have with Jesus. And so here's one reminder I want us to see. It goes like this. That questions are better than statements, okay? Questions are better than statements. Questions reveal humility to reach people who are far from God. We need to understand them. Now, the easy thing to do is to walk up to some stranger and tell them how you're right and and how they're wrong. But what's difficult is doing the tough work of walking alongside people and and taking the time to learn someone's story so that you can translate truth in, in a way that really connects with them, in a way that they can understand We risk building walls rather than bridges if we fail to have a posture of a student with people who are far from God. Now, I've never met, you maybe have, I haven't, but I've never met anybody who's ever said, hey, let's go hang out with so-and-so. I love hearing how impressed he is with himself. (laughs) I mean, I love hearing about how he's right all the time. Anybody? Never met that person. One example of Paul doing this was when he arrived in the city of Athens, Greece. He almost immediately connected with a group of really influential men as they were discussing religion and philosophy. Now, I want you to look at the very first thing that Paul said when talking to these really influential men who helped shape culture, philosophy, and even religion back then. He said this, men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines in Athens. And one of your altars he says, had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, Paul said, whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm about to tell you about. And so Paul proceeded from that moment on to tell them about what Jesus had done on their behalf. And so this requires us having discernment and wisdom here, right? And so we're told that that before actually Paul gave this speech that he was with these men reasoning with them in a local synagogue. Now, reasoning in the ancient world was a way of of asking questions. It was an exchange of ideas and a back and forth motion. And so Paul was there asking a lot of questions and he was also providing answers. Now, I want you to notice what Paul didn't say in this sermon here. He didn't stand up in front of all these men and say, men of Athens, I see that you're very spiritual. I see that you're very religious, but let me just tell you, you are so wrong. How stupid are you? He didn't say that. No, he didn't say, you know what? As I walked around your streets and I saw all the shrines and altars to false gods, I got so disgusted by what I saw that I decided to get a hotel in a city far from here because I just couldn't immerse myself in this culture. No, instead, Paul went out of his way to not offend them so that these men knew he cared enough about them to know their culture. And so Paul's message that day, it was filled with quotes from different philosophers and poets because that was a way for them to understand what Jesus and that was Paul's way of saying, hey, hey you know that one, one poet who said this? Well, well Jesus, he, he's kind of like that. That's what he can do for your life. What language connects with those who are close to you but far from God? Last month, uh, I hired a professional dog trainer to come over and help me train uh, my four-month-old puppy, golden retriever puppy, Ryder. You've heard me, you're probably sick of me talking about him by now, but you know what? I love him. I don't really care. All right, so I'm going to talk about him a lot. And so I hired this trainer to come over, and uh, yeah, there he is. Isn't he cute? Yeah, he's just a little teddy bear. He's 32 pounds now. Can you believe that? 
He gained nine pounds in three weeks. Yeah, it's like post-Thanksgiving, right? So he's doing great, but this trainer, when she was over, she said, Patrick, you have to figure out which way to, that, which way to reward Ryder in a way that is going to motivate him. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, she said, all dogs really connect with a certain type of reward. You can reward a dog in one of three ways. You can reward a dog with treats, with food. You can reward a dog with physical or verbal affirmation, praise, or dogs love to simply play with a favorite toy, and, and that's a way to reward him. All dogs are different, and so much of your success, Patrick, is going to be figuring out what motivates Ryder to obey. And so the thing is that, that a lot of people communicate. A lot of people are talking today, right? But few are actually connecting. And there's a difference. And connecting with people who are lost and broken requires that we understand their language. And asking questions is a great way for us to enter into their world to show humility. Because when we step into their life and we just make a bunch of statements, all they hear is, you know what, I'm right, you're wrong, I don't really care about you. But when we ask questions, that's a way that they can know we love you, we care about you, we want to understand you. It's a way that we can experience compassion for them. Again, you determine what comes to mind when people think about Jesus. And so what image do people have of Jesus because of you? Here's a second reminder. It goes like this. Determine when to die on what hill. All right, determine when to die on what hill. This sounds a little bit confusing, so let me explain. Sometimes we distract people with our strong opinions, traditions, or, or even secondary beliefs found in Scripture. Now, what I'm not saying is that we ought to lack distinction as a church. We shouldn't have convictions. No, we, we just need to be wise about it. Dying on the right hill at the wrong time may push someone further away from Jesus. This is why when it comes to talking with people about faith, we need to always start with Jesus and the claim that he rose from the dead. Now, one of the most common objections that people have towards Christianity is that they can't trust the Bible or God seems to be just so confusing. After all, how do we explain God turning the Nile River into blood, right? Or what about Noah in the flood? How do we explain a loving God commanding that his men wipe out an entire city of, of people full of innocent women and children? I mean, why in the world should we think that a book that mentions God appearing in the form of a burning bush should, should be reliable? I mean, if you believe that, maybe you're burning some bush. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, sometimes doubts get a little bit more personal for people. Why didn't God intervene and keep that car from swerving or the cancer cells from rep replicating? Or how could God tolerate and allow so many church leaders to abuse their power and to literally live a lie? Why is Christianity the only way? I mean, why are some Christians for immigration and others are against it? Now, if we're honest, if we're honest, many of us fear telling people about Jesus because we're afraid of being asked a question that we don't know how to respond to, right? And yet here's one thing that we need to remember when it comes to relating with people who are far from God. It goes like this. You will always struggle to believe every other claim in the Bible until you accept the claim of the Bible. And this may describe your story too, that you will always struggle with every other claim in the Bible until you accept the claim of the Bible. You see, all of Scripture is about Christ. All of Scripture is about Jesus. It points to him and what he has done for us on the cross. You see, our faith rests upon the fact that God showed up in the form of man, Jesus. He lived for about 33 short years. He was crucified. He physically died. But then three days later, he crashed his own funeral. So rising from the grave is all the proof that we need that God is trustworthy and we can submit our lives to him. 
Now, start there and then move on. Now, if you don't consider yourself a Christian and, and, and you're tuning in right now, you're not religious in any way, let me just challenge you with this. Before you totally walk away from Jesus, before you totally reject Christ for good, make sure, make sure that what you're rejecting is the claim of Scripture, not something else. Now, whatever it is that you struggle with, what does it have to do with Jesus? Does your opinion or experience make how he defeated death any less true? Now, if you've been running from God because you you just don't agree with something in the Bible and, and what Scripture teaches, then is it possible that you're assuming that if there is a God, then he thinks and acts just like you? Of course, there's some stuff in there that that we don't necessarily like and and that we struggle with. Now, here at Crossroads, the hill that we are going to die on is believing that the Bible is God's word and can show us a better way to live. But the other hill that we're going to die on is doing whatever it takes to reach people who are close to us but, but far from God. And this means that the mission always comes before our preferences. This past week, I read an article talking about what the author called the most secluded people group in the entire world. It's, it's a people group that live, uh, lives on the island, on, on the, they're called the Sintelese people, and they live on a secluded island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And they li- they've lived there for generations. Back in 2004, a massive tsunami swept over the island, and a rescue helicopter came to see if there were any survivors. Well, when the rescue team got there, they realized that all the people survived, but as they were lowering the helicopter onto the island there, they immediately had to pull back up because these warriors came out with these flaming darts that were filled with poison, and they were shooting them at the helicopter. And so it's as if these people were just doing whatever they could to isolate themselves from the rest of the world, that they would rather stay the way that they were than ever change and venture into the unknown because it's just much easier to do and to be what you've always been and to do what you've always done, right? And the reality is there are some churches that act kind of the same way. They make it their mission to to be as distant and isolated from the world as much as possible. And if you're an outsider, don't even think about coming in because you might get hit with one of those flaming arrows, right? And we need to remember that our job, our job is not preservation. Our job is transformation. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And so that's why our mission always comes before anything else. And I love the fact that being a part of a church like Crossroads, we keep our eye on Jesus and we keep our eye on the mission. And that's what it's about. Sometimes the change that I don't like is the very change that connects with someone that I've invited to church who hasn't been to church in years. Now, before we move on, let me just throw out a challenge there for you that that be wise about what you post on social media because chances are you have followers, you have friends that are not believers. And so just be wise about what you're posting, about what you're sharing or what you're retweeting, all right? Be known more for what you're for rather than what you're against. Here's the third thing that we need to remember to keep people from encountering unnecessary resistance. It goes like this, that the behavior never happens before belief. Expecting saved people to live like saved people only pushes people further away from wanting to be saved. When Paul discussed the behavior of those outside the church, look at what he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, what business, of it is, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And so Paul said, look, 
They live that way because they're without Christ. But, but for you, it's a different story. You're accountable to live like a follower of Jesus. And so people who don't know Jesus aren't going to live like they do know Jesus. Therefore, don't be surprised when their morals are different than yours. Remember that, that we're called to win people to Jesus and not necessarily to a certain moral code. And the reality is, as hard as we try, we can't necessarily fix people. Only Jesus can. Thinking that our main job is to teach people how to act would be like a doctor knowing that you have lung cancer and just giving you cough syrup as you left his office. You see, behavior is the symptom. It's, it's not the issue. I personally love meeting and intera- interacting with people who have no idea what I do because when people know that I'm a pastor, they kind of put their guard up and they put this mask on and they talk much better than they really are and they act much better than they really are and kind of see through it all. But, you know, for some reason, they're going to earn some points if they talk nice to the pastor, you know. Well, this past week, I was talking to somebody in our community, didn't know, didn't know me, didn't know what I did. And throughout our conversation, he used some pretty colorful language. I mean, really creative, too. I mean, using some words in ways I'd never heard before and a lot of four-letter words. And, and so about 10 minutes into the conversation, I asked him what he did, and he was retired, and he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. No lie, this is how he responded. Well, praise the Lord. (laughs) Uh, Yes, praise the Lord, amen, right? Now, one hill we want to die on here at Crossroads is we don't want people to show up here and ask themselves this question, what baggage do I have to leave at the door? What baggage do I have to hide, deny, or suppress, right? That's not what we want to be about. We want to die on the hill of being for all people and balancing this tension of truth and grace. Last month, I had a guy come up to me, and it was his first time here, and he shook my hand afterwards, and he said, you know, this is my first time here. I just want you to know that I'm I'm not a Christian, I'm, I'm a skeptic, I'm seeking, but, but I've had a really tough past few months. My wife has left me, I'm going through a divorce, and, and I've just kind of hit rock bottom in life. I didn't know where else to turn, and so I showed up here to church, and, and then this is what he told me. He said, I didn't know a church like this existed. And I was so grateful for many of you who serve on our hospitality team, who serve as section hosts, Because the reality is he walked away that day having a better picture, a better idea of who Jesus is because of how he was treated when he showed up here. I mean, that continued to define who we are as a church. Never are we more like Jesus when we refuse to allow how someone believes or behaves to determine if we love them or not. Here's the last thing I want us to remember. It goes like this. You can't control how someone responds. You can't control someone responds. When you invite someone to church or you ask him or her if they'd be willing to take their next step with Jesus, you really have no control over how they're going to respond. But what we do have control over is whether or not we've done our part to translate the message of Jesus into the world as best and as clearly as possible. Every time I've passed up an opportunity to talk with someone about Christ or to invite them to church, do you know what the common factor is? I either fear how they're going to take it or... I answer for them. In other words, I dismiss myself from that conversation even happening because I, well, you know what, they're just going to say no anyways. Pendulette is a celebrity magician who sometimes appears on TV, and he's also a very outspoken atheist. One time, a Christian gave him a Bible and told him that he loved him. He was so taken back by this act of generosity, and he was so moved by it that Gillette 
captured his thoughts on video and uploaded it to his website. I want you to take a look at at one portion of what he said in that video. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Isn't that true? You see, it's not comfortable for us to think about. But time is running out, and God is being patient for one more person to repent and turn to him. And so it's time we get over our fear of rejection and start inviting people to experience Jesus. Because the point or the pain of rejection that we may experience is nothing compared to the pain that ultimately happens for all of eternity when someone dies rejecting Christ. I had lunch with a friend of mine this past week. He served in the war on terror over in Baghdad, and he was telling me how one night he hung out there at the base, and his buddies all went out on a uh, mission for a few hours, and he decided to not go, but then at the last second, a friend of his decided to go in his place, and, and so as they left the camp that night, a few hours later, their Humvee was attacked by an IED, and the seat where my friend was supposed to be seated, that's where the IED struck, and it killed immediately his friend who took his place there. And that happened over a decade ago, and and since then he has dealt with so much guilt and so much grief over the fact that, that really his friend literally died in his place. Would anything change for you If when connecting with people who may be close to you but far from God, if you realize that though they are headed towards destruction, Jesus has offered to take their seat. And you see, that's what we realize when we look back at the cross, that Jesus has died the death that that we deserve. And so here's what I want us to do right now. I want us to all close our eyes. I want us to think about a person that comes to comes to mind when, when I ask this question, who is close to you but far from God? Who is close to you but far from God? Is it a child, a spouse, a coworker, a neighbor? Now, who's been that person on your mind for the past 30 minutes? I've got my name. Now you can open your eyes. We're just about six weeks away from Easter weekend here at Crossroads. And, and this is a weekend when people who normally don't go to church hate church or want nothing to do with Jesus. They're more open to attending church on that weekend more than any other weekend throughout the course of the year. And this is a great opportunity for you to begin praying and inviting people to attend with you. All right? Now, you may have heard by now that uh, we're coming back home for Easter. We're doing six services here on this campus rather than down at the Ford Center, all right? And so that means there are a lot of opportunities for you to show up. We're having services on Saturday at 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock, Sunday, 7 a.m. Boy, it's going to be early. Anybody want to preach that one? Uh, 8.45, 10.30, and, and 12.15. And so I really want you to begin praying about the person that was on your mind just a minute ago. And in the next week or two, simply invite them. We're going to have some invite cards for you next weekend. But begin thinking about this. All right, it's never too late and it's never too early to begin thinking about what it really looks like to be more intentional about being Jesus to someone in your life. Because the reality is we help determine that. We help shape that. And an invitation to Easter could be one step closer for that person 
in meeting Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've saved us, you've rescued us, and you've taken our place. And you are being patient for one more person to turn to you. And we know that there's more rejoicing and celebrating in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 who who don't need to repent because they're already righteous, they're already with you. So God, would you just help us to live on mission with that on our mind constantly and help us to realize that you, Jesus, have been patient with us and you desire for that patience and that kindness and that grace that we've experienced and to be known by all. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.